You are listening to a sermon from Restoration Church, a gospel-centered, biblically-saturated church located in Noblesville, Indiana. To learn more, visit restoration.community. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Good morning, if you are listening or watching live, and good morning, also, if you're listening to a recording. If we haven't met or you're listening to a recording and you don't know who I am or can't see me, I'm Justin Kaufman. I'm an elder candidate here at Restoration Church, and I have the exciting privilege of introducing, beginning our sermon series, four-week sermon series on the book of Malachi. And I personally enjoy very much studying the ancient Near Eastern world. It's a term you're going to hear a lot out of my mouth because I believe that if we understand a little bit about the ancient Near Eastern world, we learn about the context of the Old Testament, and it starts to mean more. We start to understand it better. But not only that, it helps us to understand Jesus' life, his death, and his ministry. When we understand a little bit about the ancient Near Eastern world, we understand the Old Testament, and we understand Jewish expectation of the first century, BC, first century AD, and we understand what it was that Jesus the culture into which he was speaking. And we understand a little bit better the messianic expectation that he fulfilled. And, and I hope that during this four-week series, you will understand the ancient Near Eastern world better. And that will help you in turn understand the New Testament better. It will help you understand Jesus' life and teaching better. And I hope, most of all, that you will see the power of the resurrection and the fact that Jesus was Yahweh's chosen Messiah. I'll be preaching on Malachi 1, 1 this week, and then week 4 on chapter 4. In between, Brad and Dan will be preaching. If you have your Bible, please turn now to Malachi 1. And I'm going to read from my NIV, and I'd like you to follow along. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Malachi 1, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will de demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. 
When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Let me pray over this text and over this sermon. Heavenly Father and great king, we thank you for this day of worship. We thank you for this gathering, this fellowship at Restoration Church. Now we ask that you bless the words of my mouth, that they would be clear, and that they would help us to understand your word, which you revealed to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I want to say, worship team, that was awesome. Well done. You sounded great. Fantastic. Um, keep your Bibles open to Malachi. Unfortunately for you visual learners or you note takers, there are no slides today, just this one. But I will try to speak slowly. And I'll give you some clues, some prompts, so you can formulate your own outline. And hopefully that will help you follow along. There will be two parts to this sermon. First, in part one, I will give you some notes on a few specific verses or passages. Then in part two, the main part, I want to attempt to explain what I think is happening in chapter one and the book as a whole. I will argue at that time, in section 2, that this book is really a covenant lawsuit, or in Hebrew, a reeve. And I'm going to use that word so you can see where it appears in the text. Reeve is the Hebrew word for covenant lawsuit. And I'm going to argue that we need to understand Yahweh as the great king and what that meant back then to the original audience. I will, I will offer the evidence as I see it for why I think Malachi is a covenant lawsuit and what that means for us now. So if you are a note taker, Roman numeral, numeral one would be notes, starting now. In verse one, we read, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the word Malachi could mean my messenger. The E at the end of Malachi would be pronounced Malachi in Hebrew. The E is the personal ending, possessive personal ending, my. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, 
translates it as his messenger and reads like this. The burden of the word of the Lord unto Israel in the hand of his messenger. If the Hebrew is to be read my messenger, then it is the only prophetic book not written by a specific named individual. Furthermore, most other ancient witnesses and manuscripts consider Malachi to be a proper noun. As does the predominant Jewish tradition, therefore I consider Malachi to be a proper noun and the name of the author of this book. We know virtually nothing else about Malachi, the author, except that based on internal evidence he wrote this book sometime in the 400s BC. After many Jews had returned from Babylon to Judea and had reestablished the temple and the sacrificial system in part. We also know based on verse 8 that the Jews were under the authority of a Persian provincial governor. This is the extent of our knowledge of Malachi and the date of writing. Note number two, verses two through five. At the time of writing, Edom, which was the land of Esau, was overrun by the Arab Nabataeans, and Edom never regained its ancestral possession. The Nabataeans had their capital at Petra, and if any of you have ever seen Indiana Jones and the search for the Holy Grail, at the very end of the movie, Indiana Jones is on his horse and he's going through that stone tunnel. And at the end of the tunnel, it opens up to a grand building cut into the stone. That was Petra. And it was filmed at Petra. In the movie, Indiana Jones keeps going further and further back into this building. In real life, it's like 15 feet deep. And it was, it was the treasury of the Nabataean kingdom. That's who the Nabataeans were. And they had displaced Edom the ancestors of Esau. Historically then, Esau in the land of Esau, Edom, was rejected and hated. On the other hand, Jacob and the ancestral land of Jacob had been reclaimed and partially rebuilt to be fully rebuilt later. Thus, Yahweh can say that Jacob was loved. I would say that Yahweh demonstrated his love by his action on behalf of Jacob and his descendants. One other note on this section. Yahweh's providence is assumed. What I mean is that Yahweh can and does choose whom he will favor and whom he will disdain. In this section, Malachi did not make an argument for election or against free will, but instead he assumed God's providence in a particular matter. In other words, Malachi wrote God's words to Israel which word assumed God's sovereign will, demonstrated by the fact that God loved one man, but rejected another? Malachi did not try to argue for God's sovereign, inscrutable will. He presumed its reality. Though this passage assumes God's providence, his sovereign choice, it does not mean that all Edomites were eternally condemned. Nor does it mean that all Israelites were saved. It meant that Yahweh had acted a certain way towards one person and his progeny and another way towards another person and his progeny. And that is God's providential prerogative. 
He had acted one way towards one and another way towards another long before either man had done anything to influence the matter. Because election or predestination is not the focus or really even part of the argument of Malachi, I will leave that argument for another time. Instead, I want to try to help explain the text and the context of Malachi. And predestination or election is not of primary or even secondary importance in this chapter or this book. Rather, this passage, verse 2 through 5, is important for the role it plays in the covenant lawsuit, the read, which I will return to later. Note number 3, verses 6 through the first half of verse 14, the first half of 14, tell us that the priests in particular were to blame because they were offering unacceptable sacrifices to the Lord. This was how they defiled the Lord's table or altar. You see, the priests are the audience in chapter 1. The priesthood was corrupt when it came to offering sacrifices. Yahweh demanded the first and the best from a flock or from one's possessions. But the priests preferred to keep the best for themselves. The priesthood became less and less righteous for the next 400 years. As priests took more and more power unto themselves, neglected proper sacrifice, avoided priestly responsibilities, and amassed wealth and prestige. This is one reason that the first century Jews expected a coming righteous high priest who would set the priesthood right. Jesus fulfilled this Jewish expectation and became our high priest who offered a final satisfactory sacrifice, which was himself. That brings us to the second half of verse 14, note number four, note takers, and the most important note in my opinion because it is crucial to understanding the whole of Malachi. There, in verse 14, Yahweh used the title Great King and applied it to himself. This is a very important title filled with significance in the ancient Near East. I want to spend a little time here explaining the significance. Understanding this concept will help you understand much that is in the Old Testament as you read on your own. And it will help us understand the book of Malachi as a covenant lawsuit, as I think it is. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the king of a conquering army or the king of an empire, because of his status as a conquering king, was given the appellation the great king. Typically, the great king was considered the ruler of the world and was especially viewed as the ruler of the recently conquered people or army. In other words, the conqueror was the great king and the conquered were the vassals. The great king imposed his terms on the conquered in a covenant. That covenant was not mutual, like we often think of a covenant as being today. In an ancient Near Eastern covenant, the great king recounted what he had accomplished and how he had achieved his supremacy in a section titled Historical Prologue. Then he established the stipulations, he called witnesses, he pronounced curses if the covenant were broken, 
and he pronounced blessings if the covenant were kept by the vassal. Now, I'd like to give you some examples of this title, the great king, from biblical and non-biblical sources, all of which are part of the ancient Near, Near Eastern world. As a first example, turn to Psalm 47, 2 through 4. Psalm 47, 2 through 4. Again, I'll be reading from my NIV. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us and peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loved. Notice here that the Lord is the great King over all the earth. Furthermore, the concept of Yahweh as a conqueror is obvious in verse 3 where it says he subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. And interestingly, verse 4 contains a reference to Yahweh loving Jacob. By doing what? By selecting a land, an inheritance, and a people for Jacob. Yahweh loves by doing, by acting. Jesus loved by doing and by acting. The biblical concept of love is not a passing moment or a fleeting feeling or even an enduring feeling. The biblical concept of love is action on behalf of someone. Back to the great king. Now here are some other non-biblical examples of this term written by kings whom you may know from the Old Testament. These examples are taken from a book titled Ancient Near Eastern Texts. From the Assyrian king Esarhaddon, the following passage is from a text that describes how Esarhaddon conquered and subdued his enemies and became the king. Property of Esarhaddon, the great king, legitimate king, king of the world, king of Assyria, region of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four rims of the earth, the true shepherd, Favorite of the great gods whom Asher, Shamash, Bel, and Nebo, the Ishtar of Nineveh, and the Ishtar of Arbela have pronounced king of Assyria ever since he was a youngster. Complete sovereignty does Esar hadn't have. From the Egyptian king Rameses, the following passage is the introduction to a covenant between Rameses and the Hittite king Hattusilus. Treaty of Rameses, the great king, the king of the land of Egypt, the valiant, with Hattusilus, the great king of the Hatti land. By these examples, I hope to put Malachi 1.14 in its ancient Near Eastern context with its original audience in mind and demonstrate the significance of this term, great king, and the significance of it being applied to Yahweh. Thus, according to ancient Near Eastern convention, this statement in verse 14 implies two facts. One, that Yahweh is the ruler of the world, which is also implied by the clause, my name is to be feared among the nations. The second implied fact is that he has subdued and made a covenant with some other people group. That other people group is Israel. And in this book in particular, it's the priests who were descendants of Levi, as we will see later in Malachi. 
by applying the, great, the term great king to himself and stating that all nations ought to fear him, Yahweh through Malachi is speaking in covenant language. Yahweh is evoking the concept of covenant and all that goes with the covenant in the ancient Near Eastern world. I have a question as a point of application. How do we behave in the presence of the great king? How do you behave in the presence of the great king? How do I behave in the presence of the great king? We are always in the presence of the great king and we should be careful how we act. Do we trivialize our secret behaviors and thoughts, justifying them, saying that they're secret and can cause no harm? We are in the presence of a king who knows and sees. But Justin, isn't the concept of God as a king an Old Testament idea? And aren't we in a different time now? Well, we are in a different time. But remember, Jesus is called the King of Kings. And Jesus made a new covenant with his blood, which we celebrate every communion. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was the act of a rightful ancient Near Eastern king. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus agreed that he was king of the Jews. All of these facts point, make the point that the triune God is still to be considered a great king of a spiritual realm and the king of a covenant people. Who is the covenant people now? Those of us who are in Christ. This is the heart of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, visitors, listeners online, hear the good news. If you are in Christ, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then the conquering great king of the universe becomes not just a king to fear. And he is a king to fear, but also a father to adore and to revere and to enjoy. That great king of the universe calls you a son or a daughter. The covenant king removes the curse from an erring and wayward human who is unable and unwilling to fulfill his obligations or her obligations under the covenant. And that king bestows upon him or her blessings and makes him a son and her a daughter. And we are, who are in Christ then relate to the great king as a king and a father. And this was all accomplished through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. There is one more thing I want to point out at the end of verse 14, which seems to me to be more covenant language and, in, and to imply a conquering great king. Here it is. In the NIV, back to Malachi, the end of verse 14, it says simply, says the Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty. The Hebrew word that is translated in my NIV as Almighty is not an adjective at all. It's a noun. It's the Hebrew noun, seba, which means army. Army. And so this clause and every other occurrence of this clause throughout chapter 1 reads, says the Lord of armies or 
the Lord of military hosts. This is a conquering king who has a host in his service. A host of angels, if not men. This word used here emphasizes the fact that Yahweh is a great king who commands a conquering army like a covenant-making king would. This brings me to the main idea of Malachi and of chapter 1. Note-takers, this is Roman numeral 2. You can call it the covenant lawsuit in Malachi. In the Bible, we often read that a covenant lawsuit was brought against someone who had broken a covenant. Often it is Yahweh bringing a covenant lawsuit, which makes sense because Yahweh often made covenants with Israel, which Israel subsequently broke. English often translates the Hebrew word reeve as to grumble against, rather than the very lengthy and awkward to bring a covenant lawsuit against. The prophets were known to speak Yahweh's lawsuit against Israel. In a lawsuit, the sovereign explains the complaint and expresses what curses will result from the broken covenant. Here are some examples. Turn with me to Hosea 4. Hosea 4. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a reeve to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. This is an example of a covenant lawsuit. There's another great example I'd like to spend a little more time on in Micah. Turn with me to Micah 6, 1 through 5. This is a parade example of a covenant lawsuit. Pay attention to the different elements. I'm going to read this from my English NIV, but I'm going to insert the Hebrew word in the places where it occurs so that you can hear for yourselves where it does occur. Micah 6, 1 through 5. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hear hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's reeve. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a reeve against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, Remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Note that in this passage, Yahweh made his case. He presented his lawsuit by describing his past historic beneficence on behalf of Israel. Such beneficence gave Yahweh standing for the lawsuit. 
Look at Micah 6, 3 through 5 again. Here, Yahweh made his case based on history. After all, he is the God of history, meaning both that he controls history and that he works in and through history. Now look back at our passage in Malachi. I said I would come back to it. What do you see in Malachi 1, 2 through 5? I'm using the pedagogical pause now, giving you a moment. What do you see in Malachi 1, 2 through 5? If you're saying to yourself or your spouse next to you, it's the historical reason that Yahweh can bring a lawsuit. You're right. Two through five is the historical reason Yahweh has his standing, his justification for the lawsuit. He did good to Jacob. He gave them a land. He prospered them. And they rejected the covenant. That's the purpose, I think, of two through five. Not to argue for or against election or free will, but to function as part of the covenant lawsuit. Now, Malachi does not use the Hebrew word for covenant, lawsuit, grieve. However, I spent some time explaining the use of the term great king and its covenant context. I mentioned the term lord of armies as a term evoking, conquering, and covenant. And now we see another element of the covenant lawsuit, that is, the historical reason, the grounds Yahweh has for expecting covenant obligations to be fulfilled. Furthermore, throughout the book of Malachi, covenant language is used. If you read the book for yourself, you will see it, and I bet Brad and Dan will highlight that covenant language in the next two weeks. Here is the main point, note takers and everyone else. Malachi records in the prophetic style a covenant lawsuit. That is the main purpose of the book. Yahweh related to his people in that time and in that place through covenants and covenant lawsuits. This is meaningful to us even today because it tells us something about how God acted and acts in history and what he rightly expects of his covenant people. It tells us that God chose to reveal himself through history and in all of the Bible in a way that was well understood then through covenants and as a great king. That did not change with the New Testament. I'll repeat that. That did not change with the New Testament. Yahweh expected righteous behavior from the priests. As we read in Malachi, Yahweh expects righteous behavior from the people with whom he has made a covenant today. What did change is that the great king, the suzerain, the covenant maker, the king of the universe, made a covenant not with a political entity and not with a nation or with an ethnic group, but with a spiritual group with those who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. He made a covenant with people who were 
before the establishment of the new covenant, sinful and unrighteous people, without hope in themselves and without hope in their own actions or merit. What did change under the new covenant is that, is that the great king who expects right behavior in his eternal and ubiquitous presence now relates to us as a good father and calls us his children, extending mercy to us undeserving, misbehaving sinners. That is good news worth rejoicing about. We will celebrate that good news now in several ways. First, in a moment, we're going to take communion. At Restoration Church, communion is for anyone who is in Christ, who recognizes the great King as the sovereign of the world, his Messiah Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We welcome you to this table. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and God is some tyrant who is only to be feared, we want you to know Jesus. We want you to put your hope and faith in Jesus as Lord. And if you need to talk with someone about that, come find me, or Pastor Brad, or Matt is still here this week. Rob is an elder, and Dan Zeller is an elder. Come find any of us five. We'd love to talk to you about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. After we take communion, there are some other ways to celebrate that the great king of the universe is our father. We have an offering basket on the shelf as you leave. You can contribute to God's work in the world by placing an offering in that basket. We'll sing one more song after communion. And the fourth way that we can celebrate is by leaving this place full of the joy that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord under a new covenant, in which covenant we say of Yahweh the great King Father. We leave this place knowing our status as children of the Most High, and we tell people. Brad's going to play some music, pray where you are when you're ready. You can come up, take the juice or wine and a cracker, return to your seats, and take it when you're ready. I'm going to pray for communion now, and then you can continue to pray on your own and come up when you're ready. Heavenly Father, great King of the universe, our covenant King, we thank you for this day. We thank you for communion, an act in which you established a new covenant in the blood of Jesus. We remember now that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was spilled to claim us, those of us who are in Christ, as your covenant people. May we fulfill our obligations under the covenant and Lord, when we don't, we fall on your mercy. We thank you for that mercy your act of grace towards us. Lord, bless us as we go from this place and we extend that mercy and we tell others about Jesus, our Lord and King. Thank you for this day of worship, Lord. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Restoration Church. To learn more, visit us online at restoration.community. If you're in the Noblesville area, join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for worship.